My goal was to have some soundtrack music playing while I walked up. Some of that Born Identity or from the Aliens trilogy or Thor. That will be next week. So come ready and then I'll play some music as I walk up and you'll have to tell me what soundtrack that is. What is the difference between a battle and a war? Is there a difference? There is. As we're talking about spiritual warfare, it's important to know the difference between a battle and a war. If you take a look at the slide here, I've got uh, the background is Custer's Last Stand. I went there on my way to the state, Washington, when I was seven years old with my dad. We stopped by Custer's Last Stand and we had to check this out. A war. What's the difference between a battle and a war? Well, a war, see, it's typically some kind of conflict between two great forces, typically one country against another. Or it could be leading up to something where you have this great conflict between two countries. Today, it now leads to not just one country, but you get allies on one side and allies on the other side, and it's just now it's going to be a combination of other countries opposing other countries. A war is typically large-scale. Large-scale conflict that consists sometimes of different theaters. For instance, World War II, what were the two theaters? There was the Pacific Theater and the European Theater. Most of the time when you fight a battle, you don't want two different theaters. You want just one front to focus on that. When you split up your forces, have two theaters, have different sides, then you cause a lot of problems. A war consists of many battles. Very important to know this. In a war, there's many battles. The war has a final outcome. Either you win the war or you don't. But what about battle? Take a look at the next slide here. Battle's a little different. There are many battles within a war. There are many conflicts, many struggles within a particular war. Depending how long the war lasts, there could be multiple battles. At times, these battles can make a decisive decision. It could happen where these battles build up, and that will determine the outcome of the war. You could lose every battle, but win one battle, and the war is determined. So it's not about how many battles are won to make a war win or not. Battles, there's many of them within a war. Typically, a battle is a particular struggle or a counter. Many times, it's hand-to-hand. For instance, the picture in the background, Custer's Last Stand, that was hand-to-hand. War is large-scale, mapping out, planning out, where battles are face-to-face, hand-to-hand. Combat. We have famous battles. Battle of the Bulge. The Battle of Waterloo. No, that wasn't here, in case you don't know your history. The Battle of Antietam, the bloodiest day in America's history. The Battle of Yorktown, which is the climax of the American Revolution. Many different battles. Again, battles can be won or lost in a war. So what are we involved in? As Christians, are we involved in a war 
or a battle. That's very important to know. Take a look at the next slide, and hopefully I got these all lined up right. This is imperative to know this when it comes to spiritual warfare. God has won and will win. Why do I say that? Well, if he's won, how can he will win? If you win, you win. At the cross, Christ came, spoiled the enemy, defeated him, dragged him around and spoiled him. And look at what I've done. He has done that, but also, that's not the end. He's coming again, amen? There is this end time, this eschatological understanding of he has won and he will win. There will be a final vindication for the people of God. Revelation 19, Revelation 20. There is this final day. So God has won and will win the spiritual intervention. He's the one that does it, not us, against the enemy for the church and for his glory. The ultimate victory belongs to Christ. This is important. The war has been won. We have won because of Christ. That makes a huge difference on how we understand the battle and what we do. The ultimate victory belongs to Christ, and we apply that victory to our lives. So important. And this is, this is huge. I do not need to accomplish what Christ has already accomplished for me. Amen? So many times we think that we're in this war and we have to do it. We have to muster up our might and do it. And he's already won the war. We have to apply that victory to our lives. So important. The spiritual war has been won. Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2, Ephesians 3. And then you could almost look at 4, 5, and 6 saying, now here's the battles that take place in your everyday life. In the family, there's some battles going on. This is how you're to live this out. Battles are still fought today. Satan has been bound. His house, his world, yet evil still exists. I, I literally today thought about just getting the headlines of the, the news. It's crazy. Even the main news websites, compared to even, let's say, the local one in Seattle, all the top stories are just nasty stuff going on. There is no utopia that people thought would happen. The battle still rages on. And we are looking at a famous passage, Ephesians chapter 6. So turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand up. We'll get you a Bible got to have this passage and as you're turning there i want you to take a look at the handout that you have with your bulletin and we've got a couple more pastor john has this instead of taking a lot of time just kind of restating some of the biblical principles that we have covered so far here's a few of the biblical principles mentioned in scripture if you don't have one of these please put your hand up because you got to get one of these it's important You can look at these biblical principles later, but on the back side is the side I want you to turn to. Everyone take a look at this sheet. You can share with someone. That's fine. Take a look at this sheet here. 
We are in Ephesians chapter 6. And this is a sentence diagram of this passage. Yes, I'm kind of old school and nerdy. When I work on a passage, not only do I translate it, sometimes that's the easiest part, doing this as a teacher, any of you teachers out there, some of you probably love this stuff, or some of you hated doing this kind of thing. It's, in fact, it's the next slide here, if you, if you want to look up. Yeah, there we go. So take a look at your sheet. This is Ephesians chapter 6, 10 through 18, mapped out in a sentence diagram. And then I've got my pencil markings. I was going to put a lot more, but Amber's like, if you put too much, it will look like you sneezed on it. She didn't use that word. But it'll look like scribblings all over, and no one will understand it. So I kept it very simple for you. Why do I do this? Because I have extra time on my hand? No. Let me just say this. As a kid, when I turned to this passage, I loved this passage as a kid. Why? Because there were weapons in it. There was a sword in there, and I love weapons. And this little boy had my little collection of little pocket knives, and when I got a machete, whoa, what was my mom thinking? So when I turned to this passage, I thought, weapons, yeah! And then another thing that drew me to this passage, there is principalities. What does that even mean? I don't know. My King James said principalities, but that's when rulers of this dark world, spiritual forces in high places, weapons and scary things. I love this passage. When we take a look at this passage and you sentence diagram, that means you pull out a lot of the subjects, the verbs, the modifiers, the prepositional phrases, and you place them in order. What modifies what? What gets placed under what? What this does is shows you what's the main thought here? What's the main push in this passage? In fact, at the top, I've put this, I've kind of boiled it. I forgot to put little arrows there. It's basically, this passage says this. Get a bunch of weapons and fight the enemy. <laughs> it doesn't say that. That's what I thought it did as a kid. But here is the thrust, the main focus of this passage. Be made strong, bink, in the Lord, by putting on the armor so that you may stand firm. This passage is all about be made strong in the Lord. Again, whenever we talk about spiritual warfare, the focus is the Lord, not the enemy. Be made strong in the Lord the power of his might, be made strong in the Lord by, how do you do it? By putting on so that you may stand firm. So church, stand firm. Be strong. Take a look at this sheet here. You notice I've got up there three imperatives. There's three main words in this passage. And then I've got way to the side, whenever it's in parentheses, that's my translation there. And I've got the NIV here. Be made strong. That's the, he exhorts you. Be made strong. It's not be strong, go do it on your own. It's, it's passive, remember? We have to be made strong by something, someone, and that's the Lord. Be made strong. And take a look at how this, I got my arrows here. If you take a look at your sheet. What's the means? How do you do it? Take a look at the sheet. By putting on. 
Okay, and then see, watch the, the, watch the arrow goes over. What's the purpose? In fact, take a look at the sheet. It goes, put on, there's a bunch of stuff underneath that, so that you are strengthened or you can take your stand or you can resist. That's the thrust. The means put on, the purpose, so that you can be strong. You can stand your ground. You can be firm. You can resist. You won't give in. Then watch my little arrow down there. Purpose goes down to reason. Why? For our struggle. He's got this whole list of things. Keep following that little line. The means, the purpose, the reason, and what's the goal? To stand firm. In fact, if you look at this sheet, it's interesting that I've even done this. Put on right here in verse 11 is the same as verse 13. Put on, put on. So that, so that. You are, you are. Stand, stand. He repeats this. This is the thrust of this passage. All right, some of you saying, well, that's a little too nerdy for me. Well, some of the people you're sitting next to have to go back to school, so just suffer a little bit as you look at this passage in a sentence diagram. Three main things. Be made strong. You've got to do that. Put on so that you can stand. That is the thrust of this passage. And I find it interesting, I put that in here as, like in the first part, it says be made strong. All the main Greek words for power, strength, energy, are in this passage. All the words, the main words for that power, strength, are in this passage. And we're going to be looking at some of these next week. Last week, take a look at the slide here. We'll get back to this. Last week we saw, just thinking military-wise, there's an authority in this battle, and that's the Lord. There's an authority, and He's the one that makes us strong. This is available and made possible by Christ. It's at our disposal. We are to stand We are to be strong in him. Very important. There's an opponent, the devil and his schemes. And even if you notice in the sentence diagram, be made strong, and I put in the Lord and his power, those are all underneath that, rely on Christ's divine power. The contrast of that is the devil's schemes. God's great power in contrast to the devil's lame schemes. We have an opponent. Again, if you even look at this sentence diagram here, I put all this stuff. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, powers. This is supportive. It's not the central issue. The enemy is not the central issue. God's power is. Amen? We have an opponent. Very important to know. There's an objective. Stand firm. Stand firm. A call to be ready to be in battle. Stand firm in the battle. I love this passage. Colossians chapter 1, 11. Listen to this. Be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Be strengthened with all power according to You can do it? No. According to His glorious might. According to His glorious might. So that you may 
have great endurance and patience. We need endurance and patience in this battle, amen? Rely on him. Be strengthened in his glorious might. Colossians 1, 11. Again, here is, as a pastor, my call to you, to the church, is this. Don't give up. Don't give in to sin. Be strong in the Lord. Stand firm. Don't give up in the battle. When the bomb goes off and everything else falls to the ground, still be standing. And whatever I can do to encourage you to do that, be strong. I love this quote from one of my favorite books, Spiritual Leadership. The heights by great men reached and kept were not attained by sudden flight. But they, while their companions slept, were toiling upward through the night. Don't give up. Don't take a nap. Don't go to bed early. Keep fighting. That's my job. As your shepherd, coach, pastor, don't give up. Stand firm. That's our objective. But how do we do this? How do you do this? How do you stand firm in the Lord? I find it kind of interesting that on some of the trips we did with the kids this summer, there was one boy who every time he went, he brought a Red Bull. Does anybody know what Red Bull is? Some of you don't even know what Red Bull is. It's not a little bowl, it's red. It's this high energy, is there a lot of sugar in there? Or is it just all caffeine? I don't know, it's everything. It's like six cups of coffee in one thing. And he was like, I'm going to climb this mountain by this. Open up. I tried a sip of it. Oh, it was so medicinal and nasty. I said, I will never drink that again. Wow, I just lost a tooth because of drinking that stuff. It had so much sugar in there. His idea was, I'm going to climb this mountain by sucking down a Red Bull. In fact, one of our trips, I typically encourage people, don't do any caffeine 24 hours before a trip. So, because then you're not relying on your little buzz and then you crash. And No, just drink a lot of water and just let's muscle this thing. Some of you are like, great, let's go hiking with that guy. No coffee for 24 hours. Is that possible around here? One boy had three of them. Let me tell you what, he did not feel like climbing or anything. He just wanted to throw up. How do you stand firm? Do you drink a bunch of Red Bulls? Do you, do you just go, oh, I know how to stand firm. I'm just going to have a bunch of faith. Here's one of the misconceptions we have. Some people think you just got to have a bunch of faith, man, and you can do it. Have faith. And their idea is have faith in your faith. As much faith as you can conjure up, that's going to make it. The object of my faith is not my faith. Know that. The object of my faith is the Lord. It's not about having, oh, just have a bunch of faith. You can do it. No. There's a strategy. Armor up. And the flow of this passage points us to that. The armor helps us stand firm. Again, take a look at the top of the sheet, the sentence diagram. I've boiled this all down. Be made strong in the Lord by putting on armor so that you can stand firm. Stand firm. What's the strategy? Armor up. Put on armor. But there's four aspects about the armor we want to look at before we get into this. 
The first one is this. Take a look at the slide. The first one is this. The armor of God is not a collector's piece. The armor of God is not something you put in a museum and collect. It is real. Here's a quote from a movie that Robert Redford was in. He was a general thrown to a prison because of wrong reasons. And the prison warden had to meet with him the first day. Strip off his stars and just throw him in prison. And Redford, while looking at the prison warden's military collection, says this. Any man with a collection like this is a man who has never set foot on a battlefield. Because he had all these old artifacts. To him, a mini ball from Shiloh is just an artifact. But to a combat vet, it's a hunk of metal that caused some poor boy a world of pain. God's armor is real. If you go to my house, you'll see I have some military artifacts. I have some cool little trinkets that are on my shelf. I've got some cool brass casings that are pretty large from some serious World War I one-pounder naval guns. But they just sit there. Listen, this is so important. The armor of God is not something you just put on a shelf. It is real, and it is to be applied. So important. It's to be applied. It's not just to be studied. It's not just to be talked about, but lived. This passage is all about do something. Some Christians love to just go, oh, yep, I'm in the world, but I've got the armor. God will protect me. Woohoo. This is all about get active. Do something. The second one you see on the next slide. The image here is these are weapons that are useful. Imagine fighting the wrong enemy or with the wrong weapons. Peter, a fisherman, nothing wrong against fishermen. Peter, a fisherman, supposed to be with Jesus praying. He falls asleep. They wake up. Okay, Jesus comes. Soldiers come. They grab Jesus. What does he do? Let me know. He takes a what? A fishing pole? No, he's a fisherman. He takes a sword and his best swing, what does he do? Lops off someone's ear. Stay a fisherman, dude. You haven't been trained to use a sword. And what does Jesus say? He says some things, but he's, this is not the time. For, what are you doing? Those who live by the sword are going to die by the sword. When you have the wrong weapon at the wrong time, a lot of damage can happen. These are weapons that match the enemy's schemes. Think of this. Can you imagine going to war and throwing bags of flour at them and they have huge, high-caliber weapons? No. Can you imagine taking a BB gun or a squirt gun to a real war? No. Let's go send Ukraine a bunch of squirt guns because we've got some pretty cool ones. Have you seen my kids? Well, they got little hand ones. No. The weapons that the Lord provides matches the enemy's schemes, his tactics, and his weapons. This is important. Where there is perversion, God makes a provision. 
And these weapons are of divine provision for the church. They're not just of flesh and blood. They're divine. We have divine weapons. Whenever I see movies that are depicting like the Revolutionary War or Civil War or way back in the day with bow and arrows, it, this is weird, but in my mind I go, can you imagine having an M4 in that war? Can you imagine if Washington, when he had such a limited amount of guys, if you gave them a bunch of machine guns, M16s, whoa, they could have just mowed them down. Listen to this. In the battle that we fight right now, in the spiritual battle, we have not just weapons that match up with the enemy, we have superior divine weapons. That's profound. That's like going to cavemen with a bunch of machine guns going, let's go for a hunt and find a big elephant. Instead of that spear they had. We have divine, powerful weapons. For instance, we have truth to fight against anything that distorts the image of Christ. And if you're unarmed with the spiritual resources that the Lord gives, your battle is going to be tough. And guess what? You might lose a few battles here and there. But you have divine, amazing weapons. The third thing, the next slide. Metaphors. Metaphors of warfare common in Scripture. In the Old Testament, New Testament, in fact, in the Old Testament, there were battles. They didn't even have to use metaphors. There are allusions to the armor of God, figurative. And when we look at the armor here in Ephesians, where does Paul draw this from? Where is he getting this understanding from? As a kid, in fact, if you Google armor of God and hit images, every picture of the first 20 or 40 of them is a Roman soldier like this with a spear. He's got his, you know, he's got his shield, he's got his helmet and the cool red stuff, or he got coloring pages for the kids. Armor of God. As a kid, I always pictured on the flannel graph, because that's the kind of church we went to, a Roman soldier. Rightfully so. To the Gentiles, they understood a Roman soldier. When you think of armor, when you think of this stuff, they would picture a Roman soldier. Rightfully so. Paul has been in prison. He's next to a Roman soldier. Just look at the guy. Okay, yep, here's some of the armor they have on. So some of that association is valid. But where does Paul really pull this from? As a military-minded person, I sometimes want to read this passage and put my own stuff in there. The modern warfare, the modern stuff we have. But Paul referred and referenced to, what does it say? So let's take a look at this passage. Ephesians chapter 6, starting with verse 10. Finally be made strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Verse 11. Ephesians 6, 11. Put on the full armor of God. Whose armor is this? God's armor. Of God. When when we look at this word, it's genitive, it's possessive, it belongs to. Whose Bible is this? Cody's Bible. This is the Bible of Cody. This belongs to Cody, correct? My name's in it, I believe it is. Yeah, there it is. Cody Cargus, okay? This is my Bible. Go back to this passage. Put on the full armor of God. 
so that you may be able to stand against the devil's schemes. Drop down to verse 13, because he says it again. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. This is God's armor. Paul referenced God as the model of this armor. It's his armor. So here it is. God supplies, so important. God supplies the power and the strength. It's all his. It should be no surprise that he provides then the armor. If he provides the power to do it, if he provides the strength to do it, no surprise that he provides the armor to do it. It's his armor. He is the source and the one who gives it. Thus, it's divine in nature. My armor is divine in nature. And this is what's interesting. Paul's words here echo greatly passages found in the book of Isaiah. Sure, Paul sat next to his Roman soldier. I'm sure he looked at him and thought, hey, here's some armor here. But Paul isn't saying, put an armor like the Romans have. Because you know it's the word javelin's not in this passage. And back then they had different other armor that's not mentioned. Paul uses words in Isaiah and uses his analogy with Isaiah and borrows this image from God fighting against evil. Take a look at the next slide. I think I have this here. Look at these passages. Maybe just write the references down. But when we read these, some of you know this passage. Think of what's going to happen here in Ephesians. In fact, I'll read Ephesians first, then we'll read these passages. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with a breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now listen to Isaiah. Isaiah eleven fifteen. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. This is talking about the Messiah, the one in the Davidic line who will come and rescue his people. Isaiah 59, 17. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. He made my mouth like the shepherd's sword in the shadow of his hand. He hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. Isaiah 49, 2. Or Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation. This is God's armor. Isn't that profound? This isn't some, get some armor, hey, here's a Roman soldier, strap on his stuff. This is God's armor. He provides the source, the power of this armor. It's noted, though, that he doesn't, Paul doesn't quote these passages exactly. Nor in these passages, we don't have the word shield or sword. Yet he describes the armor, wording it, and we can see it's drawn from Isaiah. The Lord is the one who is dressed as a warrior. He has come in the Old Testament and fights against evil. And Paul says, this is the armor that we have. 
take up the armor that God and the Messiah took up in Isaiah to fight and establish truth, righteousness. You know, I find this not a surprise because we're called in Ephesians, be like Christ, imitate Christ, follow him. So no wonder we have to imitate the Lord by putting on his armor. This makes this passage far greater than I thought as a kid. Here's the line. Take a look at the next slide. Because of this, and just soak this in you, because some of us, we look at marriages. We look at the political systems. We look at the financial problems we have. We look at world structures around. What's really going to happen in Ukraine with Russia right now? What's really going to happen with, in the Gaza Strip? What's really going to happen all around the world? ISIS, what really is going to happen? So important to know this. We can. You can live fearlessly in this hostile world because God is the source of our strength and he has given us his armor referenced from the book of Isaiah. How could you have your head down so low? How could you feel like you're defeated when you have such a great, mighty God who gives us his armor? The fourth thing, take a look at this next slide here. The fourth thing. The focus is not on the weapons. The focus is not on take this sword. As a little boy, man, I was like, yeah. In fact, my object lesson next week when we talk about sword, I should pull a couple of my cool knives and swords and have all the kids around and like, yeah, let's cut up some watermelons and see how powerful they are. The focus is not on the metaphors of the weapons. What type of belt? It's interesting. I even started getting off track a little bit going, well, what type of belt is he talking about? There's some with certain straps. What type of shoes? You know, some of the shoes had metal studs so they get some grip in there. What? No. It's not how to strap it on. The significance is not in the pieces, but in what they represent and what they express. Sorry, all my object lessons are gone. Cool weapons I was going to pull out next week and have some fun stuff, show and tell. The focus is not on that. The focus is not on the description of the armor specifics, but in the imagery and the virtue itself. For instance, it's not about getting the belt and buckling it on. It's, It's all about harness on truth. Harness this on. He could have done, like in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Clothe yourself with these things and just make a list. Clothe yourself and have a bunch of virtues. He doesn't do that. He uses this so we can kind of get this image of we're in a battle. Here's armor. It's the Lord's armor. Put it on. Strap it on. Harness it on. And, honestly, sometimes we get caught up in going, well, let's see, there's the helmet of salvation. That protects the brain. And also, you know, their helmets were kind of covering the ears, so the salvation protects your ears from hearing. Oh, the breastplate of righteousness. Well, your vital organs are covered in the righteousness. Don't get so caught up in the metaphors. For instance, 1 Thessalonians 5, 8 says, putting on faith and love as a breastplate. Oh, I thought it was righteousness. It's just a metaphor. 
So the fourth thing is focus on what they represent and what they express. Very important. So let's look at some of these things. Verse, in fact, take a look at the sheet again of my sentence diagram. Let's get nerdy for a moment here. The first part, be made strong by putting on, very important, all this, and the goal, stand firm. All this first part, boiling down saying, be made strong in the Lord. Do this. How? By putting on armor so that you can stand firm. So what's the armor he talks about? Now we're going to verse 14. Take a look at this. Stand firm has been in this passage four times. Stand firm, stand firm, stand firm. Now it's finally this command, this imperative. Stand firm. Then, and I put in by. Well, how do you stand firm? All the other section of this is dependent on this stand firm. And all the verbs are participles, which I always put the word, the letters I-N-G at the end. Harnessing, putting, fitting. You actively do this. They're all underneath and dependent on the means by which we stand. So how do you stand? Take a look at the sheet here. Harnessing the belt of truth or with the belt of truth buckled. Harnessing on truth. The next one, putting on righteousness. How do you stand firm? Fitting your feet with the gospel of peace and being ready with that. Stand firm by taking up faith. And then there's another imperative here, but that's still subordinate to this stand firm. Take the helmet of salvation, which is the word of God. Then prayer is in there. Even though it's not, some people don't list it as one of the weapons, it's still grammatically and structurally underneath all this. These are things we're going to look at. And we're just going to look at the first one today. Stand firm then by harnessing, by having strapped on. Strap this on the belt of truth around your waist. So the next slide is this. Stand firm by harnessing truth to your life. Put on truth. Put on faithfulness. We saw that this passage comes from Isaiah 11.5. Righteousness will be his, the Messiah. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness will be the sash around his waist. Isaiah 11.5. Here is a weapon that contradicts what the enemy has. What is the enemy all about? Lies. Lies, lies, lies. You're worthless. You're nobody. You are a loser. You're lame. You're in Christ. You're going to lose this war. The war's already won. John 8, 44. If you've got a moment, turn there. John 8, 44. Very important, again, about weapons. Weapons are all about coming against what the enemy has perverted. God gives a provision. John 8, 44. Jesus speaking to people here. You belong to your father, the devil. 
and you want to carry about your father's desires, speaking of the devil, here it is. He is a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. There is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. No wonder the Lord gives us a weapon, and that is truth. This is so important today. And there's two aspects about this, and these are not separate. I don't think they are separate. One is know the truth of Christ and the gospel message. What combats the enemy lies? The truth of Jesus. Do you need Jesus and other things, yes or no? No. Do you need to follow Jesus and then do these other things to make your salvation right? No. Well, Jesus really isn't God. <laughs> Steve and I met for coffee this past Wednesday. And I sat down and we were right in the middle, two ladies walked in and I went, oh, these are the two ladies that knocked on my door last week. They came and sat right behind us and I went, thank you, Lord. But I'm always about Lord. Should I or should I not say it? Say something. So as we're talking, I was kind of praying, Lord, hey, I'm just your, your tool, your vessel. What? And I remember getting up going, I'm not going to say anything. And then I just went, I have to. I said, wait a second, Steve. Ladies, you need to worship Jesus. And they were just like shell-shocked. They were like, That's, why would you say that? Because in their cultic regime, you do not worship Jesus because he's not God. Jesus is just some, oh, he's a prophet type. He's a good kind of small God. You don't worship Jesus. I just went, I can't wait someday for you. I pray that you would worship Jesus. Because in my mind, I'm going, someday you're going to say he's Lord. I don't, whatever side you're going to be on, you're going to. And they were just like, what? That truth was offensive to them. And they and even seemed kind of just sat there and they're kind of throwing out their little things. I was like, no. You're believing a lie. And, just, and he even said, I see how tricky they are. You, know, he, you need to know the truth of the gospel of Christ. You need to know that. If another Jesus is preached, get rid of it. Only Jesus. And what is the gospel message? Here's the gospel message in a nutshell. There is one God. He made us good. He made us good, but we turned against his holy way. We sinned. We failed. And God would be just to condemn us forever. But God, in his great love and mercy, took on flesh, fully God, fully man, lived a life of obedience all the way to the cross and died for his children, died for the ones who would turn to him and repent of their sins and live completely for him. And they are his children and adopted into the kingdom. Do you know the gospel message? Ephesians 4.21 says this, When you heard about Christ, you were taught in him in accordance to the truth that is in Jesus. 
What is the truth in Ephesians? Jesus Christ. He is the only way of salvation. And that is the message this dying world wants to know. And the enemy is all about keeping people in the dark. Yesterday at this funeral that we went to, there were tons of people there, and this guy was a big hunter and hiking and climbing. He hiked everywhere in the Olympics. He was 74 years old when he passed away. And this, the church that he went to was too small, so they had to add a, a different church because they knew tons of people from the community would come. In fact, often all the testimonies and people talked about it was, was his hiking. And I sat there, I was like, I'm not going to really know anyone here. But then I looked around and went, oh, there's some people that I've been hiking with. And there was this gentleman way in the corner. I was like, this guy I know does not know Jesus. Unless something happened the last couple months since I saw him. And I thought, I need, Lord, please open a door so I can talk to this guy, John. And I remember going, okay, where is he, where is he? He's an older gentleman. And I remember someone just last week saying, this John guy is in a bad place right now. He is just hurting. And I went, good. Because he needs to know about Jesus. And I remember just kind of going, and I remember walking up towards him, and he saw me and just turned and took off. And I, rem- I thought through, I was like, every time that we've met, he, we have had great conversation. He really likes me, you know, and, and I just went, there's a spiritual war going on here. I'm not surprised. It's not because I look funny. It's not because he's mad at me. It's because there's a spiritual war going on. I was like, Lord, Pray for the next time I can talk to this guy. He needs to know the gospel of Jesus, that there is freedom in life. Church, harness on truth. Know the message of this gospel. And you need to do what's right. So there's an aspect of knowing it and living out. You need to harness on truth by living a right way. Are your words true? Is there perversion in your words? In your lifestyle, do you do tricky stuff at work so you get a little bit more than you? Do you kind of short people? Paul, in this great book, chapter 4, verse 1, As a prisoner of the Lord, therefore I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. You've been saved by truth, now live a truthful life. Put on the belt of truth. It's not just putting on a belt of truth. It's harness on and live truth. We must walk in truth. Deceit should no longer be our way. Keep the faith. Resolve to live in the truth of the gospel. Let's pray.